Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters-in-Law with Kimberly Atkins-Store, Barb McQuaid, and me, Jill Wine-Banks. Luckily for all of us, Joyce will be back next week. As I hope you all know by now, the Sisters-in-Law are going on tour. It's going to be in May in Portland, Oregon on May 12th, New York City on May 19th, and the District of Columbia on May 21st. So go to politicon.com slash tour to get your tickets. They are selling fast, so hurry up. Let's get on with the show today because we have a lot to cover. We'll be discussing the New York Grand Jury, the Georgia Grand Jury, and the federal activity regarding Trump this week. And as always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. But before we get to all those topics, let's talk a little bit about Walgreens. And I know you all know that Walgreens um, has stopped selling one of the essential pills for abortion. And they caved into the anti-abortion forces. And I had an interesting discussion with my doctor. I was at the dermatologist and she gave me a new prescription. And I said, don't send it to Walgreens. I'm going to look up right now the CVS nearest me. This is the first prescription I've had since Walgreens took this action. And she said, you know, I'm so shocked, but you're the first patient who has done that. And I thought that every patient would be doing that. So have any of you decided that you're going to boycott Walgreens and change your prescriptions or even your shopping habits. I used to buy a lot of uh, cosmetics and you know other essentials at Walgreens because it's the closest store to me and has good parking. But so, what about you, Barb? I I know you have serious thoughts on this. Yeah, I haven't. You know, it's an interesting um, situation. You know, Walgreens uh, sells drugs across the country, and there are certain states now that are banning mifepristone. And uh, Walgreens has said they're not going to sell in those states. I imagine if you are a business advisor to Walgreens, you would say we want to avoid risk and selling in those states means that you are likely to be in violation of the law and that will bring with it some consequences. I guess I'd rather see them be more courageous and take on that battle and fight it, but it's hard to put yourself in their shoes and know all of the other battles that they are fighting. I also don't know that every other drugstore isn't doing the same. Walgreens has gotten some heat about it because Gavin Newsom in California has said they have a contract with Walgreens and they're going to stop contracting with Walgreens because uh, of that of that position. But, you know, I, I haven't done enough research to know about it. And I think sometimes um, if you're going to engage in a boycott, it's important to do your homework and also to be uniform and consistent about it. Um, and so I, I, I just haven't done the homework to know and I also, um, I, I have a little bit of sympathy for Walgreens that finds himself, they're not the wrongdoer here. I think the wrongdoer is states that are trying to push these laws. So let me say, I did do the research because I agree with you that no one should take action that is not based on the facts. And the states that they are refusing to sell in include states where abortion is still legal. So I don't know why they went that far. Well, it's because the attorney, the Republican attorney general, attorneys general in those states sent them that threatening letter. It's why they didn't do it. Not every, not every state where the Republicans sent the letter is a state that has yet banned it. Right. But they will win in those states. They will probably win overall. And because Walgreens is the largest pharmacy in the Chicago area, um, although CVS is larger nationally, um, it's giving up a lot for me to not use Walgreens because they are way more numerous and much closer to me. So it, it is a lot. I just felt like they, like Disney, have the resources to stand up to this kind of uh, threat and that they should have stood up for their patients' right, for the people who need this care. And mifeprestone is used not just for abortion, but it's used for management of other diseases and for um, uh, miscarriage management. So it's an important part of healthcare for women, and I just think that it's wrong for them to do it. What about you, Kim? Are you boycotting or are you not? So uh, just as a technical matter, my prescriptions are filled by a 
a pharmacy that is not Walgreens. There's no Walgreens close to me. So I can't remember the last time that I was in Walgreens. But I also appreciate Barb's comments. On the one hand, I think that voting with one's pocketbook is a really important way that citizens can demonstrate their views and and make people uh, aware of what they want. So I don't I certainly um, don't uh, oppose the idea of a boycott generally. I think that's part of the marketplace. That's how the marketplace works. You put your products out there, you you support or don't support what you don't want to, and then customers have the right to support or not support you. So I think that that is important. For me, just in living life, um, I have found that it is very difficult to try to be a purist to the point that you only support companies that do everything that you agree with. And so I don't draw lines that broadly generally. Um, and, and so I can understand what Barb is saying. I, I know that there are a lot of companies that have terrible records with things like, um, it, you know, work-related uh, work related things, uh, supporting um, less than ethical work habits. Any, you know, some big companies, some of the things that we use every day have a lot of issues and sometimes they address them, sometimes they're satisfactory and sometimes they're not. That's different for me, just where I draw the line from a company like Chick-fil-A, which I haven't gone to, I haven't frequented Chick-fil-A in a long time because that company directly supported organizations that push for policies that I find abhorrent when it comes to LGBTQ communities. So I'm not going to give my money there knowing that my money directly goes to that cause. But if an executive or, or something else, or if a company has some policies that I may not support, if I boycotted everyone, I might not be able to buy any products. So <laughs> um, I, I just, I just, find that a difficult thing to do, but I really support the the decision by individuals to choose to um to choose to shop at or not shop at places based on their views. I think that's part of the marketplace and I think that's a very powerful way where people are empowered. We get asked a lot from our listeners, what can we do? Well that's one thing that you can do. That is definitely something you can do. And I actually went a step further when I went to pick up my prescription at CVS. I made a point of saying to the pharmacist that I had was a new customer and that I was there because CVS was still selling mifeprestone. And so I wanted them to know that there was a benefit to them to not follow the, um, the policy of Walgreens. But that was, you know, that's my decision. And I, I hope others will at least think about whether it's time to, you know, walk away, talk with your pocketbook. Uh, and this goes back to the Vietnam War when, you know, we started boycotting Dow Chemical because they were making Agent Orange. So I, I think there, you know, there is some impact on our shopping habits. Well, folks, I want to talk about um, what might be coming up in the coming week. You know, when I was pregnant, I read this popular book that was recommended to me called What to Expect When You're Expecting. And then there was a sequel, What to Expect the First Year, and then What to Expect the Toddler Years. And I read them all. They're very useful at different stages. You could imagine a sequel for raising children in the Trump family called What to Expect When You're Expecting to Be Indicted because I think that's what we're expecting next week. There has been um, great anticipation that Donald Trump may be indicted by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office as early as next week. And Jill, let me ask you about, about this. Do you agree with that speculation? And um, on, on what basis do you, do, you, do you make that speculation? So I feel comfortable answering the second part of your question about what the basis for my conclusion is. I hate making speculation, mm -hmm. but I do agree with you that it's really coming soon. And there's good reason for that. The reason I don't like speculating is because we don't know. <laughs> it's not in our hands. But we've seen some things publicly that make me think it's soon. Trump's lawyers met with prosecutors. 
Trump's lawyer is making a series of media appearances, the most outrageous of which was his interview with Ari Melber, which was absolutely, unbelievably a brilliant interview. Um, There's reporting that the former president was invited to testify before the grand jury. We know that Stormy Daniels spoke to the prosecutors. From what I've heard, it wasn't, she did not appear before the grand jury, but did a Zoom with the prosecutors. Hope Hicks was in, and Michael Cohn was in for two days. And um, he is, of course, one of the major witnesses in this. When you put all of those things together, but particularly an invitation to testify before a grand jury, that's one of the last things you would do when it's the possible target is you give them the opportunity to present their case. He has now publicly, through his lawyer, said he has no intention of appearing, but it's also been made public that his lawyers did have conversations. And of course, um, his lawyers on television saying what their defense is, all of which are ridiculous. Maybe we'll get to that in the conversation. But those are the reasons why I do anticipate the Manhattan DA is about to act. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I think we're close to the end. All of those things you talked about, kind of the key witnesses, Donald Trump himself being invited in, seems like the kind of things you would do at the end after you have uh, armed yourself with all of the information so that you could ask good questions. And and Michael Cohen, finally, after like 19 or 20 meetings with the prosecutors, finally gets to go into the grand jury. And I think they wouldn't put him in until they had done all the work and satisfied themselves that they could trust that he was telling the truth and that they could persuade a jury that he was telling the truth. So I kind of see the uh, the handwriting on the wall in the same way. So Kim, what to expect when you're expecting to be indicted? If you were representing uh, Donald Trump, God Ooh. forbid, what would you tell him to expect <laughs> to happen if he were to be indicted? Well, I think uh, if that happens, there are some ways that Donald Trump will uh, should expect to be treated just like anybody else who is indicted. And there are other ways that he probably will be treated differently. So it starts, if I were the attorney, I would try to meet up with, uh, talk to the Manhattan prosecutors and find a way for him to, for example, be uh, surrendered voluntarily as opposed to being arrested and detained and handcuffed and, you know, given the traditional perp walk. I don't expect that that will happen. There's not going to be that moment where they they uh, they say don't don't be too nice and push his head down until yes, it doesn't bump and it on ram the car. it into the right yeah. ram it into the car. Yeah, I don't think that that's going to happen. I mm-hmm. think they will work out a way to get him uh, where he needs to be processed, but he will need to be processed, which will include he will be fingerprinted. There will be a photograph of him taken, known as a mugshot, and I expect that that photograph will probably be released. He will have uh, his cheek swabbed for DNA, which is done with people after they are in custody, uh, to put in a database. Um, There'll also be some sort of arraignment. Now, there too, usually people have to show up for that arraignment. I would expect that his lawyers would try to get some sort of uh, out uh, non-present arraignment, whether it's virtual, done virtually or some something else so that he doesn't have to show and, and say that he understands the charges. But there will be some process there and we will see him in, in this uh, traditional way that we've seen other people who've been indicted. Yeah, boy, um, you know, I've always uh, been opposed to perp walks, but I might make an exception in this case. <laughs> Um, You'll get the mugshot. You'll get the mugshot. Yeah, there there will be a mugshot. And that will be public. Jill, how about in terms of public safety? Um, You know, I've been reading that law enforcement is preparing for the potential uh, event of an indictment. What what do you expect they're doing in anticipation, if if anything, of, of a Trump indictment? Well, I'd be shocked if they weren't preparing because we've seen the reaction based on false information believed by many of the MAGA crowd. And so they are going to have to set up all sorts of preparedness for possible demonstrations, possibly violent. Um, Certainly, if he surrenders in New York or wherever he surrenders, um, they'll have to take some precautions. Right now, of course, New York is going to bear the brunt of it because 
right now that's what we're talking about is a New York indictment. And I should say, by the way, that I debated what pin to wear, even though <laughs> our audience can't see, you guys can. I decided on my number one, since he is individual number one in the <laughs> Michael Cohn indictment. Um, but I also have a stormy pin. I thought about wearing that too. Um, anyway, I, I think that they are preparing to resist some sort of demonstration by crowds. And the FBI is involved, Homeland Security will be involved, New York police will be involved. But I think they're gonna have to go beyond New York because I think the demonstrations could be certainly in Florida, which is where he resides. They certainly could be in DC, which is seen as the evil leader of all this. Um, so I think that there will be a lot to look at for the law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And, you know, peaceful protest certainly is uh, not not, to, not just uh, permissible, but sort of a, a tradition in this country that should be uh, permitted. Um, and, and as you say, there'll be concerns about making sure crowds are safe and other kinds of things. But I know one thing I worry about is like what we saw in Cincinnati after the Mar-a-Lago search was announced, a man approached the FBI field office there uh, with a staple gun and an AK-47. And it led to a standoff in which that man was killed. And so I, I think, you know, thinking through those kinds of scenarios, of course, you can't plan all of them, but being prepared for, you know, angry people coming to government offices anywhere in the country, I think is something that law enforcement's going to have to be prepared for. So, you know, we used to do special event planning when we had things like uh, the Super Bowl in Detroit or the World Series was here, the NCAA Final Four uh, for planning f to make sure everybody was safe and there was no you know, threat or attack. I think they almost have to approach this the same way. But what's challenging about this is I think this kind of attack could take place anywhere in America. So mm -hmm. definitely something to worry about. Well, Kim, how about as we're talking about what to expect when you're expecting an indictment, how about in terms of press preparation? You're a member of the press. Um, what do you think the press is doing in preparation for a Trump indictment? No doubt they all want to be there if there's a court hearing. What, what other kinds of things do you think the press is doing to prepare? Yeah, it depends on what each member's uh, member of the press's role is. Certainly the beat reporters will be around trying to see if they can catch a glimpse of him somehow uh, as he's uh, entering or exiting the place where uh, that processing will take place. Uh, certainly they will be ready to be able to explain whatever potential charges he might be facing once those indictments come down. I know there's probably a lot of B copy written and a lot of experts who have been interviewed already or on call to be interviewed. I know people like us will probably be uh, on call to help explain what's going on on, on MSNBC and, and other news organizations. So I think people are, they've been gearing up for this for a long time. They've been, um, you know, no knowing that this is a possibility. And I think you will see wall-to-wall uh, -wall <laughs> news coverage of this once this happened. Once this happens, I think uh, the press will be prepared. Yeah, and how about politically, Jill? You know, um, certainly a former president has never been charged with a crime before. So in that regard, it's big news and it's very significant news. On the other hand, I think there might be some who say, this is the first crime you could come up with. Uh, this happened seven years ago. It was about, um, you know, something in his personal life to protect him from embarrassment or to protect his wife from embarrassment. Uh, what do you think would be the political reaction if and when Trump is charged? Well, of course, as you know, uh, Trump has already started on that route. Um, but I think he'll go beyond the claims of it's a witch hunt it was extortion. I just was trying to protect my wife and family from the embarrassment of this. It had nothing to do with politics. And it's just a big old witch hunt. It's the Democrats are out to get me. That's what's going to be. And Democrats, unfortunately, will not respond because there's just no evidence that they have. You're right that this is the first time that a president, a former president, has been indicted. I'm, I take personal responsibility for that failure because Richard Nixon should have been indicted. I think both while he was the sitting president, but certainly the minute he resigned, 
he was eligible for indictment and should have been indicted and tried with his co-conspirators. Um, I failed in convincing the special prosecutor. I and many others on the team failed in getting that done. And then we wouldn't be having this argument politically of can you, should you. Uh, we would see that the country can and will survive this as other countries have. Mm, so interesting. I can just picture you in your Watergate girl miniskirt, <laughs> slam, pounding your fist on the table saying, we need to do this for history. And you were right. I, I, I you know, at the time, I remember thinking that the you know, Ford's pardon and all those kinds of things were in the best interest of the country. And I think they were oh. intended to be, but I think uh, if Trump, if Nixon had been held accountable, we might see a different, uh, a different series of events playing out today. Um, Kim, let me ask you about the political response from the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. If you are preparing right now, um, uh, what they what their messaging ought to be next week, if and when these charges come, what advice would you give to each of those parties about how they should respond? Should they be distancing themselves from Trump, for example, if they're Republicans? Should they be piling on if they're Democrats or just like, let, you know, let the news speak for itself? How, how would you be messaging those things? Oh boy, I'm glad I'm not a political strategist. And I certainly um, have no idea how to advise the current Republican Party, so I'm not going to try. Um, it, it, listen, I think that the best response by anyone, if this is happening, is no one is above the law. No one is above the law. The rule of law is important and it should be supported. Are we going to hear that from a lot of people? Probably not. I, what I expect to happen, certainly from uh, Trump himself and those in his orbit, is to spin a lot of nonsense about how this is a political conspiracy, politically motivated out to get him, baseless, um, that, you know, this is in itself the threat to our country and, and all these other ridiculous things. It's not. It's the rule of law playing out. I, I think that it would probably be a mistake for Democrats too to overly overly politicize it. Mm -hmm. I think that the best response is to say this is the rule of law in action. We should let that play mm -hmm. out. We have trust in our judicial system. We have trust in the people that administer it. We have trust in our jurors who will hear this case if it goes to trial um, and, and move forward from there. So, you know, what should happen, what will happen are different, but I'm really glad that's not my job. <laughs> well, we will uh, we will see how it plays out. So uh, uh, buckle up and uh, tune in. I'm sure it's going to be an interesting week. This week, we learned that five of the 23 special purpose grand jurors in the Georgia probe of alleged election interference by Donald Trump and members of his inner circle were interviewed by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution about their experience. And they gave new details about the evidence that was presented in the case. So let's first talk about some of that evidence that was revealed by these grand jurors, Jill Tell us about the third phone call that we learned about this week. And what does that tell us about District Attorney Fonnie Willis's case? So there are already two phone calls that we knew about. This one, we actually knew that there was a phone call. What we didn't know is that it was recorded. And the grand jurors talked about that they got to hear the third phone call. It was a call between the former president and David Ralston, who was the Georgia legislature's uh, Speaker of the House. And it was a call in which Donald Trump tried to convince him that he should call a special session of the legislature to overturn the election, to undo the vote of the people of Georgia. So it was a clear election violation to me. And it was clear that it was handled very well by David Ralston, who basically, when he was asked to do this, said, I will do everything in my power that I think is appropriate. And apparently, according to the grand juror who spoke, it sort of left Donald Trump speechless, and all he could say is, well, thank you. So that was a pretty interesting exchange. 
Um, you know, I haven't, as none of us have, heard the actual tape recording. I'll look forward to actually hearing it because there's nothing more persuasive and more dramatic than actually hearing the defendant speak the words that are the subject of it. And what this shows us about um, the DA's case right now is that it is a very broad um, investigation of a lot of election fraud. It isn't focused solely on what was the original phone call, which was to the to Raffsenberger, the Secretary of State, about how he could find 11,780 votes, which was one more than Donald Trump needed to win since he had lost by 11,779 votes. And that started this, but the investigation has clearly gone beyond that into the fake elector scheme, into this phone call, into a phone call to one of the investigators uh, for the Secretary of State. Um, and so I think that leads us to the speculation about whether uh, Willis, who has been known to use the Georgia RICO statute, the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organization statute, whether she's thinking of calling all of this a enterprise for corruption and looking at all of the crimes that may be committed here as a combined thing or whether she's planning to just uh, go with individual indictments for election fraud, for tampering with an official proceeding, for soliciting lying or election fraud, for lying, for forgery, for influencing witnesses, which can combine up to a lot of things, but the RICO has a 20-year penalty. And that's, that's important to keep in mind because it really does up the penalty. So Barb, the former grand special purpose grand jurors talked about three buckets of witnesses. What does their description tell us? Yeah, it was really interesting. And I guess not surprising, really. They said that the first set of witnesses, and this was the group they heard from early on, um, were very forthcoming. Uh, they had nothing to hide. They wanted to be helpful. And they came in and told their stories. Um, and then they said the second bucket of witnesses were those who were maybe a little more reluctant. They needed to get a subpoena before they were willing to come in. They wouldn't come voluntarily. But once they got there, they were willing to talk and, and tell their stories in a forthcoming manner. But the third uh, was this group of people who clearly did not want to be there. They had fought uh, their subpoenas. Um, when the witnesses um, testified, uh, they were very tight-lipped. In fact, one of the jurors said it was like night and day when we got to that third group, the tone in the room completely changed overnight. Yeah, I found that really, really interesting. And Jill, they were surprisingly specific about exactly what some of these witnesses said from the testimony of the election workers in Georgia, Ruby Freeman and her daughter, Shay Moss, uh, who the jurors said made them emotional when they testified, to Senator Lindsey Graham. So what of this new information that we learned about the actual testimony was most interesting to you? It, it, first of all, I have to say that this article was so well written that you almost felt like you were reading the script of a movie <laughs> and you could visualize all the stuff that was going on. I could see the juror sitting in her car afterwards breaking down in tears over what she had heard about the trauma that Ruby Freeman and Jay, Shea Moss had suffered as a result of being attacked by the president. Um, but I also was very taken with their testimony or their saying to the interviewers about how seriously they took their job. And as someone who has worked with grand jurors, I know how seriously they take their role and mm. how they pay attention and how they really do it. But the whole process they described about how they wrote the report, that it wasn't written, about their relationship with the prosecutors and with each other. Um, I found that to be really, really interesting. And their relationship to the foreperson, uh, Emily Kors, who, had, who was not one of the five that was in this article. 
she is the one who spoke first and did a round of television and uh, I think newspaper as well, uh, interviews. And they wanted to make sure that the arguments that are now being made that made the grand jury look like they weren't taking this seriously, to talk about how seriously they took this. And of course, the, the, the final thing that you can't forget is one of the jurors saying, I said to my wife, if everybody in this country knew all the facts that we now know, this country wouldn't be as divided as it is now. Mm. And that, that really was a very moving statement to me. Yeah. And, and Barb, I, I want to talk about the fact that these special grand jurors, um, six now, if you count their four-person, Emily Kors, who did a very public media tour a few weeks back, are speaking so openly about this process. I mean, it, honestly, it, it, it seems it, it's discomforting to me. Mm-hmm. What are the rules that govern what grand jurors can and can't say after their service has concluded? And are you surprised at how forthcoming they're being with the press? Oh, it's been stunning to me, Kim. I mean, yeah. w- w- when I practice in the federal system, it's very, very different. Jurors like prosecutors and uh, you know, the court reporter who's in there taking down all the words are sworn to secrecy. They may not discuss any matter occurring before a grand jury. There's a rule of criminal procedure, 6E, that talks about it. Only the witness may disclose what happened in the grand jury. And imagine we have that exception so that a, a witness can't be browbeat or you know, in some way intimidated or coerced. They have the ability to disclose what happened there. But um, the grand jurors, I have never had a case I'm aware of where a grand juror so much as uttered the fact that they'd even served on a grand jury. And so um, it's really shocking to me to hear all of this detail coming out. In Georgia, um, it appears that the the rule, I looked at the grand jury handbook there, and all it says is that grand jurors must not disclose their deliberations. That's the word. And the judge who presided over this grand jury said the same thing and even gave some public remarks later that said, as long as they don't divulge their deliberations, it's all right. And so I don't know how they define deliberations, but Emily Kors, the the foreperson, disclosed that they had recommended the indictment of more than 12 people. It sounds a lot like deliberations. I mean, I guess she isn't <laughs> yeah. disclosing like the back and forth. Maybe just that's right. the deliberations. Or and exactly the who is these the indictments yeah, were, would be against, but yeah. Yeah, you know, the judge said, he specifically said that, uh, and these jurors said, I, I shouldn't say he said it, the jurors said that the judge had said to them that they could talk about witnesses what the prosecutor said, and what was in the final report except for the names of people they recommended for indictment. And they couldn't talk about their deliberations, which, Barb, you're completely correct. It's a little vague to me as to what that means, given some of the information that came out. Um, and it is so shocking because as a federal prosecutor, that would never ever happen. You just, it, it, there's no way uh, you have to get special court permission to reveal anything other than during the trial uh, where you can introduce some of the evidence from the grand jury. So it, it's, it, it, was, it was surprising, um, but I have to say it's very interesting. <laughs> but, and there's a reason for the secrecy rules. You know, yes. it's not an arbitrary rule. The, the reason for the secrecy is to protect everyone involved Number one, if people know who the witnesses are who've been coming in, they could be intimidated, they could be threatened, um, they could be coerced, they could be harmed. And so there's a real worry about protecting them. There is also a desire to protect the accused. If people know, oh, charges are coming, um, you know, that is not good for the reputation of people who might be involved in those things or, you know, conduct business in the community uh, or uh, or what have you. Um it can also compromise the case itself. You know, it's, yeah. it's good to be able to uh, be able to produce the case, to do what you need to do without um, uh, people having a window into what's going on. Um, and the grand jurors themselves, um, you know, if they're disclosing and outing themselves, Emily Kors is perhaps putting herself at risk with some of these, uh, you know, Trump uh, supporters when she puts her name out there. So, I think there's a reason we have these secrecy rules, and I wonder whether Georgia might adopt 
more stringent secrecy rules after this. So what do you both think happens next? Do you think that there will be charges forthcoming? I know Willis said that uh, a decision will be made imminently, but that feels like a long time ago now. Um, What do you think is going to happen next? Start with you, Jill. I would be shocked if there wasn't indictments and if they didn't happen soon. And I say soon because to the extent that we speculated on why imminent didn't happen imminently, which it did not. You're right. It was a long time ago when she said the word imminent. It was because we thought she was waiting for the new grand jury to be seated because Georgia has another strange rule, which is that a defendant can request a speedy trial within weeks after the grand jury expires. So rather than her indicting immediately with a grand jury that was expiring days after the indictment would have been brought down. She was waiting. Well, the new grand jury was seated on March 7th, I believe, and that's already 10 days ago. So, um, you know, it it won't expire for two months. So, you know, there's that. But even still, I would think that she would want to get it in earlier in the grand jury session than later, if we were right about the reason why she didn't indict earlier. Yeah, Barbara, what do you think? Yeah, you know, she's she's the one who chose the word imminent. She told the judge, (laughs) and now some weeks ago, that her charging decision was imminent. I I guess, uh, you know, I, I recognize Jill's point, which is she had to wait for the new grand jury to come in. And my guess is she had to do a little bit of work there to republish some of the findings of the prior grand jury. They heard from 75 witnesses. She doesn't need to call all 75 witnesses. She could probably use a summary witness or two, like a law enforcement agent who could just sort of recap some of the highlights without, uh, you know, going through all of the details that all of them talked about. And that takes a little bit of time. And then the prosecutor has to present a proposed indictment and has to do a summation. So that could take a few days. But I kind of feel like imminent's here. You know, I'm ready. I'm ready for imminent. Wouldn't it be something if Fannie Willis beats Alvin Bragg to the punch next week yeah. uh, or that they both come in the same week? I suppose that's a possibility. So I think that's coming. And, you know, before we wrap, can I just say one thing in, in the article, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that you've been talking about, Kim, um, with the dynamic of the grand jurors that I think is so interesting. I think Jill is absolutely right that the reason these five are talking is they might have been concerned that Emily Coors, who seems like a very enthusiastic and earnest and diligent person who did her duty, may have been portrayed as less than serious mm. and that there was a concern that the public would see that they had done had not been serious about their work, you know, some of the yeah. things that Trump has said about her disclosures. And that's why they wanted to come forward and explain just how serious it was. There's a detail in there that I love, and that is... Um, she became the foreperson because she was an enthusiastic volunteer and she was between jobs. So she had the time. And so no one opposed her. Um, Some thought that the one lawyer in the group ought to be the foreperson, but that person, and this is what's so lovely, I think, my my reading of this, demurred and said, tell you what, Emily can be the foreperson and I'll be the deputy. Right. I mean, isn't that just a beautiful thing? Yeah. Like she really wants to do it. And he says, um, you know, let's let her do it, but I'll be the deputy. So it, it, I don't know if this is a man or a woman. Um, they said, I'll be the deputy. And and so, you know, just a little safety net there to make sure things were done properly. But giving uh, Emily Kors her moment in the sun to swear on the witnesses and shake hands with Rudy Giuliani and all the things that she wanted to do. And and it's also interesting, just the fact that a lawyer was on the mm-hmm. panel uh, you know, most of the time when I've been up for jury service, and I've never been uh, considered for grand jury, but when I've been called for trial jury, I'm the first person to, that's mm-hmm. dismissed. Yes, and so it's 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 a different story as to grand juries and how they're selected. It's not the same process of, you know, cause for being stricken. But even still, I was just surprised to hear a lawyer was on the, the grand jury. Well, let's follow up our discussion about what's happening in Georgia and in New York with what's happening on a third prong of possible criminal cases against the former president, activity at the federal level, which includes 
Speaker McCarthy giving Fox News, specifically Tucker Carlson, exclusive access to over 41,000 hours of January 6th footage not previously seen by the public, and what's happening in the special counsel investigation. I'm going to start with looking at the facts and consequences of McCarthy's release of the footage to Fox News. And first, Barb, let's look at what is the possible justification for this footage being given to any media outlet when it creates a security risk to members of Congress and their staff and anyone else who works in the Capitol building by showing escape routes and where cameras are. You're our security expert, so what do you think? I think there's no justification for it. I think it's incredibly irresponsible. I mean, it it seems that Speaker McCarthy is motivated by concerns that the January 6th committee uh, showed only the bad stuff and they cherry-picked and it was somehow a misrepresentation of what really happened that day. And so he wants to show the other side of the story. But the way to do that is to convene a committee, if there is something to be shown, is do it through Congress, right? You you have, and then you can have people uh, screen out things that might be a security issue. You know, cameras in stairwells and hallways and showing the locations where they take members of Congress to keep them safe during moments of emergency and crisis. Um, not to give all of it, like, here you go, have at it. He sort of outsourced this product, uh, the project to Fox and say, here you go, have at it. He must have known that the agenda here would be to cherry pick this footage and try to show that, no, it wasn't uh, It wasn't dangerous at all. Why, look, here's some people walking in quite calmly. They're not uh, maniacs trying to kill Nancy Pelosi. So therefore, it's all been a big misunderstanding. You know, it's sort of like Jill saying, um, well, you just focused on the time that I killed my husband. You didn't show the footage of all the times I wasn't killing my husband. <laughs> that is such a great description because that's exactly what it was. And I mean, for me, it sort of proved when Tucker Carlson used basically minutes of 41,000 hours compared to the hours that were shown previously by all networks and by the Congress is that there wasn't much to cherry pick that showed nonviolent behavior. So it sort of, to me, proved the opposite of what he was trying to prove. But Kim, from your perspective as a member of the press, uh, is there a justification for giving it only to Fox? And was the result of giving it only to Fox a false narrative? And has anybody criticized Fox for how they use the tapes? Oh, certainly. There's been criticism about... Uh, this one-sided, cherry-picked, and completely concocted narrative that was being made based on the use of this footage. And in terms of how uh, it was given only to Fox, you know, Speaker McCarthy said something to the effect of, oh, well, it was a scoop, you know, all the time. We we give certain news organizations a jump on some uh, information as happens since the beginning of time. And then, you know, eventually it'll, it will release it to others. Well, they still haven't. Um, they're still, he's still saying they may release it to others. Now the, the, the you know, the horse is out of the barn, it, it, even if all the news organizations get it, scrutinize it and say, there's absolutely no, no, they're there. The damage has already been done. And so this is an attempt to aid Donald Trump in getting exactly what he's always wanted, which is like like state-run news. He wants something that's like Pravda, you know? He wants something that's like the Chinese, the, the, the news organizations that I saw when I was in Beijing that, you know, only give certain pre-cleared news, created news, and blocks out things um, that they don't want the, the people to see. That That's what they're trying to create here, propaganda, and it's really sad. It is, and even... Uh, McConnell and the Capitol Police Chief have criticized how this is portrayed. So it's it's been a really interesting thing. And so, Barb, beyond the false impression for the public tuning in to Tucker, there have been consequences of the release to other cases, the ongoing trial of the Proud Boys, for example. Talk about what's happening in that case and how the defense is using the release of this extra footage. Yeah, so we saw a motion filed in the Proud Boys case. You know, with the trial has been going on now uh, for six weeks or so since January. 
And um, there was a, a lawyer in that case who said, based on this security footage, the government has uh, hidden exculpatory evidence uh, that would tend to show that their clients are not guilty of this crime. I mean, again, it goes back to the same idea that if I was behaving well for even a moment uh, inside the Capitol, then that somehow is exonerating for the claims that I engaged in violence and, you know, uh, assaulting police officers. So it's really nonsense. Um, There is um, uh, also some argument that Jacob Chansley, you know, he was the the one referred to as the QAnon shaman who wore the crazy headdress and painted his body and all of those things, that because some of the footage was withheld from him, uh, it would have been exonerating and his case should be dismissed. Uh, You know, he's, he's there for hours. They show four minutes where he is walking peacefully. It doesn't negate all of the bad things that he did, like go stand on the speaker's chair and leave a note that says justice is coming and, uh, you know, parade through there and disrupt the vote. So it's it's really created a distraction and a sideshow, which is just another reason why it was so irresponsible for Kevin McCarthy to release this to Fox News. It surely was. And the government prosecutors have responded very strongly to this denying that any of this has any impact on any of these cases. Uh, But Kim, let's go to the last question about McCarthy's exclusive release of footage to Tucker Carlson. Does McCarthy have any liability for a security breach or for fostering a fake version by only giving it to Fox, which, as we've all said, used it to create a false narrative? So did he violate any laws by giving it only to Fox or... um, Uh, What about some of the complaints that have been filed against him for doing this? And lastly, was it a political mistake for him to open up January 6th again, which doesn't seem to me to help the Republicans at all? Well, he clearly, on that last question, he clearly doesn't think it's a political mistake. And for all we know, it may have been one of the terms um, that he was held hostage over by a segment of his uh, caucus in order to help him get the speaker's gavel. Who knows? He's doing this because he thinks politically he has no choice. And that's that's what he needs to do. And that's what he needs to do to please uh, both his caucus and voters. That, that's, that part seems pretty clear to me. In terms of liability, I don't see a clear way that he violated some rules. Yes, a complaint, the, the complaint that I saw that was filed, what was by a group called Public Citizen, which is a uh, nonprofit watch, watchdog group. And they filed a complaint with the Office of Congressional Ethics, basically saying that by releasing these uh, tapes in the way that they did, it violates th- the spirit of the First Amendment in protecting a free press by giving Fox News this this exclusive to it. Now, I think the reason that Public Citizen, and you know, there are other groups that are like this crew, uh, other things, and they're happy to go to a court and file a complaint. The reason I think they filed this with the Office of Congressional Ethics is that I'm not sure a court case could be made. And at most, uh, this office, which is a nonpartisan office that that uh, evaluates ethics claims of members of Congress, the most they could do is refer it to the House Ethics Committee for further action. The House Ethics Committee, which is run by House Republicans, which means nothing is going to come of that. So I think the short answer is no, not much is going to happen, which is, I think, why McCarthy did it. Okay, so that's why he's going to get away with it anyway. Uh, Let's move to the other part of the conversation, um, which is a quick discussion of what's new in the special counsel investigations of January 6th and of Mar-a-Lago by Jack Smith. And there was a lot of news about their attempt to get one of Trump's lawyers, Evan Cochran, to testify. And as we were recording this, News broke. Barb, you want to talk about that and also talk about some of the interviews of dozens of Mar-a-Lago staff, servers, all the way up to other staff at Mar-a-Lago. Yeah, well, the news just in this afternoon is that uh, Judge Beryl Howell in Washington, D.C., the chief judge there, uh, has granted the government's motion uh, to require Evan Corcoran to testify Uh, finding that the crime fraud exception does apply to his testimony. That's based on reporting out of CNN. 
citing um, unnamed sources familiar with the matter. So I don't know who that is, but um, it, you know, it rings true. Um, there had been this battle. Evan Corcoran had reportedly testified before the grand jury, but had declined to answer certain questions, including a question about a phone call he had with Donald Trump on the very day the government served um, Trump with a grand jury subpoena to uh, regarding the documents, the, the documents still held at Mar-a-Lago in the summer of 2022 when they denied having any more. Um, and so the, attor- the uh, attorney-client privilege, of course, ordinarily protects any conversations between a lawyer and a client designed for the purpose of obtaining legal advice. Uh, and that is usually, you know, kind of hands off, but there is this exception when it's being used to further a crime. And so that has to be shown by the government by preponderance of the evidence. And it appears now that the judge has found that that standard has been satisfied and has ordered Evan Corcoran to come back and testify before the grand jury about these incidents. My guess is the government saw that phone call through phone records and saw that they were talking to each other and wanted to know what it was they were talking about. Like, yikes, got a grand jury subpoena. What do you think we ought to do with it? Should we give them the 27 boxes? Like, nah, just give them a little folder. So I think it could be pretty interesting um, in terms of the uh, obstruction of justice aspect of the investigation. And it'll be interesting, his testimony, because he also is the lawyer who told another lawyer to file an affidavit that said that all the documents had been turned over. So that's Mm -hmm. pretty interesting. Um, And what do you make of the interviews um, by Jack Smith's staff of dozens of Mar-a-Lago people? Do you think that's about moving the documents around? I do. You know, my my guess is that what you would want to do in that situation is to talk to everybody who might have seen something, both because you want to uh, make sure you have all the information you can have, and also uh, to neutralize anybody that might become a defense witness. You know, if there's anybody who's gonna be the fall guy later who says, oh, oops, I accidentally moved those boxes because I thought they were, you know, uh, old papers that didn't um, have any significance. It was all me um, and it was all an accident. You know, so I think... uh, They just want to make sure they're aware of all of these things. And they also want to lock in people into a story so they can't fabricate a new story later if this case were to come to trial, say, a year down the road. All right. So last question. Um, And I'll start with you, Kim, on this. But, Barb, I'd like your perspective, too, after Kim talks. And that's sort of a general discussion of the pros and cons of indicting in any of the cases we've talked about today, Georgia, New York, federal, what what do you think, Kim? Yeah, I mean, I I, I want to hear what the 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 prosecutors say because um, you both obviously have more experience on this than me. My gut um, on this is I worry that if he is charged with some sort of low um, some sort of misdemeanor or even a low felony and it doesn't carry a lot of weight, that it can be very easily politicized and that it can if that's the first charge that comes down, that can paint all of these investigations with the same brush and make it seem like there is something to this idea that this is just a political witch hunt. Um, I would like to, if I had my druthers, that whatever the most serious thing is, that comes out first and you make it count and you have the goods. Uh, But we're not in control of that and the prosecutors aren't even in control of that. They can't control what other prosecutors do. But I worry that the first charges, if there are charges, are something small or something less serious, and it makes the whole thing look less serious. So if you were the prosecutor in any of these cases, which would you want to be the first? Well, I don't know, because I don't know what charges they're going to bring. But my point is, if the if the most serious charge may come out of Georgia, New York prosecutors don't have any control over that if they want to move right. with whatever they have, no, is no. what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, it, we don't know how it's going to come out. The prosecutors don't know how it's going to come out. They don't know what each other is going to do. That's that's. That's basically my fear. And I don't know, I don't want to say which one I'd like to see first because I honestly, I'm not a prosecutor. I don't know what evidence they have to charge and what a a, a grand jury is going to, to back. So Prosecutor McQuaid, mm-hmm. what do you think? I, you know, I agree with Kim that none of them are going to coordinate. None of them can control right. what happens to the others. They're all going to, um, you know, uh, bring their charges when they think the time is right. I mean, my guess is they're all moving as rapidly as they reasonably can, but they want to be thorough 
You know, if you come at the king, you best not miss. So I'm sure they're being ultra careful to make sure they know it's going to be a dogfight once uh, Donald Trump is indicted. And so they want to make sure that they've got all their T's crossed and I's dotted. But I think that, um, you know, we tend to look at it in sort of the court of public opinion. And I think that when it comes to the cases, um, each of these cases is going to have to stand or fall on its own. And so, you know, nobody in Georgia is going to be talking about what's going on in New York and no one in uh, the federal case is going to be talking about what's going on in Manhattan. So I think in some ways it might matter for the chattering classes like us, but um, maybe it matters politically because I think that uh, Trump, no doubt, will call all of these things witch hunts. But I think that in terms of the cases themselves, you know, once you get into that that courtroom uh, all extraneous matters are off limits and you really have to focus solely on the facts and the law in that case. And so I don't know that it much matters at the end of the day. Right. And and I guess part of what I was aiming for in this question was the pros and the cons of any indictment, not of a particular case, but just the, you know, going back to the failure to indict Richard Nixon after he resigned. Um, for me, the pro for indicting is that one, no one is above the law, and that accountability needs to be had, and that if our laws are to mean anything, it means that they have to be enforced. So if we have a law that says that you can't take home a classified document, then even though that may be a smaller crime than inciting a riot that led to the death of several police officers, um, I think that that still needs to be brought. Um, and the only cons against indicting are that it will have some political effect. And for me, that isn't a legitimate reason. I don't think that any prosecutor should consider the politi political impact of an indictment. They have to look at what are the facts that I have that I can prove by valid evidence and what is the law? Can I meet all the elements of the crime that I'm indicting for? And that's the only thing they should look at is do they have the facts that match up with the elements of a crime? And if they do, I think they have to indict. Now it's time for our listener questions. And we all love this part of the show, I know that the questions always make me think about things that I had never thought about, how certain things relate to other things. And other times it's things that we take for granted because we're lawyers and we understand them, but they aren't obvious to other people. So if you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show because of limited time, keep an eye on our Twitter feeds throughout the week where we sometimes answer your questions. We do as many as we can. So send us your questions. And today we had some really good questions. I'm going to start with one from Robin. And I'm hoping Kim can answer this. Are the Fox TV's owners and or hosts being sued in their individual capacities for the undisputed defamation of Dominion? Or is the lawsuit only against the company? If the current lawsuit is only against the company, can Dominion also sue the individual defamers? What would the legal theory be? Kim, can you take that question? I think I can. So this gets to uh, the very wonky tort law principles that I always love talking about. So there are several cases that have been brought by Dominion and Smartmatic uh, alleging defamation against Fox News and whatever a news organization is being sued, uh, individual uh, employees, as well as the people within Trump's orbit who went on these shows as guests, people like uh, Sidney Powell or Rudy Giuliani. So in those cases, the, 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 the Trump people would be sued in their individual capacity and they would have to defend these cases in their individual capacity. But when it comes to both the news organizations and the people who work within the news organizations, be they hosts or be they producers who chose to put these people on, it brings in a uh, principle called respondeat superior. Basically, that means that employees who are working within the scope of their employment, if they commit some sort of tort, like defaming someone, it is uh, the employer who assumes the liability 
for that tort. And if there is a judgment issued in that case against the employees and the employer, that liability would be joint and several, meaning that the entire judgment would have to be paid by one or both of those defendants. And usually the way it works out is the employer pays for it. So I highly doubt that the individual employees will have to open their pocketbooks and pay. I know people uh, within uh, in journalism, not in, not in this context, but in other contexts who were sued for defamation, there was a judgment or a settlement and the news organization paid the whole thing. Now, those people may lose their jobs. There may be some price to pay. Um, but with Fox News, who knows? But uh, I love being able to talk about things like respondeat superior and joint and several <laughs> liabilities. So thank you, Robin. <laughs> I love that you got to say respondeat superior on the <laughs> airwaves. I love it. And we have another great question from Lisa L. She asks, do you think the newly signed child labor rollback law recently signed by Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders will be a future SCOTUS case? Barb, what do you think? You know, actually, I think I don't. It, it's really interesting to see how uh, states, this is, and they're not alone in Arkansas, we're seeing it in Ohio and other states where they're rolling back their state child prote- protection laws, their child labor laws. In fact, the New York Times just had a big story about how um, immigrant children are working long, long hours in factories across the country. Dangerous it's, factories. Yeah. And, you know, the, with the worker shortage and uh, immigration bans, <laughs> the workers have to come from somewhere. And so they want to put more children to work, which I think, you know, in states that pretend to care about children when they want to protect them from things like, you know, uh, phantom dangers like drag queen uh, story hours, but but they're willing to, you know, put them to work on uh, in manufacturing or, or long hours and, and um, roll back some of these protections. It really demonstrates the hypocrisy. But I think that as long as they're in compliance with federal labor laws, states are allowed to set their labor laws where they want to. And in most instances, states had previously had more protections than the federal protections. And so, for example, in Arkansas and some other states, one of the requirements that the state had imposed was getting a certificate from your parents to say it was okay for you to work if you were under a certain age. And that's one of the things they've rolled back. That's not a federal requirement. And so it's not a violation of the law. I think that where we could see a legal challenge is if a a state tried to evade federal laws and, and provide less protection than what the federal law requires, that's where we could see some legal conflict. And I'm going to take a question that came from Jill for Good STL. And I, of course, picked it because it's a great question, but also it's a great name. Uh, Jill asks, <laughs> with the recent news that Fox News knowingly lied to its viewers, is there any regulatory body that can hold them accountable Is this outside the scope of the FCC? Yes, Jill, it is. The FCC does not regulate cable channels. And so they have no jurisdiction over Fox News or MSNBC or any other one. Uh, That's an issue that probably needs to be looked at. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Barb McQuaid, Kimberly Atkins-Store, and me, Jill Weinbanks. And don't worry, Joyce will be back next week. You can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. And don't forget, I know you know, hashtag sistersinlaw are going on the road. Come and join us as we record the podcast live on stage. We will be discussing the legal topics of the day and answering questions from you in the audience. We're starting off in Portland, Oregon on May 12th, New York City on May 19th, and Washington, D.C. on May 21st. There are still some tickets available, but hurry because they're going fast. Go to politicon.com slash tour to get your tickets today. We can't wait to meet you. And please support this week's sponsors, HelloFresh, Blueland, Noom, and Athena Club. You can find their links in the show notes Please support them as they really help make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag Sisters in Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. It really helps others to find the show. 
See you next week with another episode. Hashtag sisters in law. By the way, I'm disappointed in you, Miss McQuaid, on this St. Patrick's Day. Where's your green? Oh, am yeah, I the only Irish person here? Yeah, I'm not wearing green. Uh, I am, however, hosting an Irish feast in a little while with oh, takeout right. from a local restaurant. You okay, know. well, yeah, that corned makes beef up and for cabbage it. and shepherd's nice. pie and fish fry for those who Ooh. observe Lent. Yum. Abs- yeah. Okay, so you're uh, forgiving. I may have to add a shamrock to my pins for tonight's <laughs> yeah. TV oh, yeah. hits. There you go. I mean, I have to wear a political one, but I, I do have a shamrock, of course. All right. I will, in your, it, it, with that shaming, Kim, I will be sure to put on a green shirt later. I'm doing MSNBC, I think, at 10. So I'll, I, I do have a good green shirt. I'll pull it All out. All right. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for the reminder. <laughs> have fun. Been a wild rover for many But now I'm returned.